Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. My name is JY Ping, and today I want to talk about most strongly supported questions. So last time we talked about the miscellaneous fill in the blank with a conclusion kind of question. That you want to think of that as a subset of most strongly supported questions. See, what we did there was we identified a claim into which support flowed. Okay, and the support had to come from pretty much all of the stimulus, like everything in the stimulus somehow synthesizes together and flows into the thing we call the main conclusion. So in that sense, you know, that's this is why I call uh, that kind of question a subset of most strongly supported. But today we're going to look at other kinds of most strongly supported questions. These are questions where, you know, I'll just read some of the question stems. The information above provides the most support for which one of the following claims. Here's another which one of the following is most strongly supported by the editorialist's statements? So notice that these question stems don't ask for a conclusion. They just ask for some claim that you can support on the basis of claims above in the stimulus. So really the major difference is that when you're identifying a conclusion, everything in the argument has to come together to drive towards this point. So if it is a conclusion, then it automatically is also a most strongly supported claim. But a claim doesn't have to be the conclusion in order to be a most strongly supported claim. For example, if I say something like, all cats are mammals, Peanut is a cat, and then I ask you to give me the conclusion, well, you would say that the conclusion is Peanut is a mammal, because that's what those two claims are driving at. You know, you use both of those claims, Together, they push out this inference, all cats are mammals, Peanut is a cat, well, therefore, Peanut is a mammal. So that claim right there is at once a conclusion. And also, you know, if you were asked a question on the outside about most strongly supported, that claim would also be the correct answer to the most strongly supported question. But you could also say something like, hmm, okay, so all cats are mammals, Peanut is a cat, so if something is not a mammal, then it can't be a cat, which would be true and would be 100% supported by the claim that all cats are mammals. So that claim, if something is not a mammal, then it cannot be a cat, would also be a correct answer choice to a most strongly supported question. In fact, it would be the correct answer choice to a must-be-true question, because it must be true. But uh, that point aside, here I want to illustrate the difference between most strongly supported and main conclusion. It would be weird, however, to say, oh, I know what you're getting at. You're getting at the main conclusion that... If something is not a mammal, then it cannot be a cat. Uh, Not really, right? Because what about Peanut being a cat? We just completely ignored that premise. So you see what I mean? Main conclusions are main conclusions and they receive support. But not every claim that receives support has to be a main conclusion. So that's what we're going to look at today. Most strongly supported questions generally, where the correct answer choice may or may not be the main conclusion of the stimulus. I mean, it could, right? If it is the main conclusion, fine, pick it. It's the right answer. But it doesn't have to be the main conclusion. Sometimes, and I mean, sometimes they do this pretty frequently where they give you a big, long stimulus and like half the information is just irrelevant. And there's no way for you to know that beforehand. You, you just you have to like just trudge through all the information in the stimulus And you have to, in the back of your mind, you have to be like, okay, yeah, I got to understand all this stuff, but it's possible that they're only going to use like the first two sentences to support the correct answer choice, right? And and they just kind of ignore the rest. Or it could be that they try to synthesize everything together. 
and the whole stimulus is kind of building towards a conclusion of some kind. That could also be the right answer choice. Okay, so we talked about the idea of support last time. Here, we're again going to deal with this idea of support. It's a relationship. Support is a relationship that exists between statements. You know, we call the conclusion or a conclusion, right? Not necessarily the main conclusion, a claim that receives support. And premises are claims that give support. So they define each other. This idea of support is a cornerstone on the LSAT. So we really have to get clear, get familiar with this idea. And and the best way to do it is not really to talk about this theoretically in abstract terms like I'm doing now. I mean, you know, that's just the framework. Really, the way to do it is to see questions, see how it operates out in the wild, so to speak. Right. So we're going to take a look at the June 2007 prep test. And on this prep test, there are only two questions that are MSS questions, most strongly supportive questions. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately for us, these are rather difficult questions. Uh, of course, I like I would like to start if you're new to this. I mean, if you've been studying for a while, this probably sh- should be okay. But if you're new to this, this is going to be challenging um, to to hear this only you know only the audio version of this. Uh, so I I would actually recommend that if this is hard to follow, and there are lots of reasons why this would be hard to follow, but if you find this kind of hard to follow, I would recommend going on 7th stage and finding the video version of the explanation for these questions. In those questions, I also do sort of take it slow and treat it as treat the student as if you were a beginner. But okay, so, so here it goes. Uh, we're going to do section 2, question 18, and section 2, question 22, both from the June 2007 prep test. Those are the two most strongly supported questions. So for question 18, the question stem reads, the information above provides the most support for which one of the following statements. Now, notice something crucial, and you're going to notice this once, and you're, you're just going to sear it in your memory so you never have to read and think about it again. It's just going to be something you do habitually, okay? And that is, the question stem says, the information above provides the most support. It doesn't mean the information above and your specialized knowledge about the world, Okay. What it, what it means is the information above and just the information above and your basic contextual common sense assumptions about the world. Okay, that's the part that's not stated in the question stem, that is. It is stated sort of in the intro instructions part to the logical reasoning section, which you probably never read. I mean, you should read it once, but then obviously don't read it again. It's, it's a waste of time. But most strongly supported questions do require like common sense contextual knowledge. Like you need to know the meaning of words, for example. You need to know how words relate to one another. That's going to be stuff that's not stated. That's going to be the read between the lines act that you're required to perform. Okay, but it is very dangerous if you start to take specialized knowledge that you happen to have because you're a specialist in some field and start to apply it. And I want to be clear about this. It's not dangerous because like the LSAT is going to be factually wrong about some specialized field. No, actually, they're almost never like whenever they draw from the real world, it's almost always factually accurate. Insofar as our understanding of the world was at the point that the question was created, right? It's going to be factually accurate. 
here is the danger. <laughs> the danger is that you might just be wrong. Like you might think you know a thing and then you're actually wrong, right? So your false belief in certain things, that's going to influence you. Or alternatively, the stimulus talks about some subject and you, because you know something about the subject, you have adjacent information in your mind. Like it's not what the stimulus, like for example, the stimulus will talk about wolves and everything about wolves. And you know that dogs are descendant from wolves. Okay, fine, that is true. But the stimulus didn't talk about dogs. So some answer choice might talk about dogs. Because they know that when you read the stimulus about wolves, that's going to trigger a whole cascade of surrounding adjacent information in your mind, knowledge you have about the world. And then they're going to try to use that information to create a trap answer choice, right? to bait you. That's the danger. That's generally what... This is probably advice you hear from many different places. People say, don't bring in outside knowledge, right? I say this too, don't bring in outside knowledge. That's what's meant by that. It's not that having outside knowledge hurts. It doesn't have to hurt. In fact, it can be incredibly useful. I mean, we see this. It's so clear on RC. When you have outside knowledge, the passages just make more sense. It's just that it could be harmful if you're not using it in the right way. Okay, so let's dive into question 18. And I'll illustrate that point along with a bunch of other points, a bunch of other repetitive cookie cutter things that the outside writers like to do to construct stimulus, to confuse you, to construct trap answer choices, to confuse you. We'll see the stuff repeating just a bunch in future questions. Okay, so the stimulus goes, modern science is built on the process of posing hypotheses and testing them against observations, in essence, attempting to show that the hypotheses are incorrect, all right? So if you already knew this about science, this sentence would just make a lot of sense. It'll be clear and you'd be like, yeah, I already knew that. If you didn't, you see, you got to do a little bit of thinking. You got to do a little bit of processing. What is this sentence saying? It's telling us that here's how modern science works. It's a process. Some people build hypotheses, guesses, stories about how the world works. And then you perform observations to test to see if those hypotheses are true. In essence, the stimulus tells us what you're really trying to do is you're trying to falsify these hypotheses. You're trying to show that these hypotheses are false so that you can ever increasingly whittle down the number of hypotheses. I mean, you, you look at, a, let's say, this is from an old RC passage. Let's say you notice the phenomenon of a bunch of dolphins washing on shore dead, right? Like hundreds, thousands of dolphins. Naturally, you want to know what happened. So you start formulating hypotheses. But, you know, the number of hypotheses are potentially endless, infinite variations on little things that could have happened or here and there. So you start testing these hypotheses. Different hypotheses carry with them different predictions. So you start doing experiments and you start seeing which one of these hypotheses we can eliminate, we can falsify. So that's the essence of science, the act of falsification. Okay, Uh, so let's keep going. Nothing brings more recognition than overthrowing conventional wisdom. Ah, so here... We have to make our first read-between-the-lines lateral connection, so to speak. They just told us that the entire enterprise of science boils down in essence to this act of falsifying people's hypotheses. So if you're able to do it, well, presumably you get some recognition, right? Now, are all hypotheses equal? Do you get equal measure of recognition for every hypothesis you falsify? No, they're gradients. Some hypotheses bring more recognition to you when you falsify than others. Einstein, for example, I always come back to this, um, but Einstein was so famous and still is so famous because he falsified the conventional wisdom 
of Newtonian physics. Up until Einstein, Newton had the last word on mechanics and motion and physics, conventional wisdom, right? That was the conventional wisdom in physics that was derived from Newton's hypothesis. Einstein overturned that, and that's why he got so much recognition. So you see, the whole game here is to falsify hypotheses. The bigger, the sturdier, the more conventional the hypothesis you take down, and those things are called conventional wisdoms, the more recognition you get. See, again, this is what I mean when I say outside knowledge is very helpful. Let's say probably most of you have not taken a philosophy of science class, but if you have taken a philosophy of science class, everything that I just said, you'd be like, oh yeah, we talked about that in class. Is a, it's a rehash of, I'm sure, of one of your lectures or class discussions. So you would just process these two sentences like very well, very clearly, without effort. But if you haven't, it's going to take some effort. You really have to think about this. How do these statements relate to one another? Let's keep going. It is accordingly unsurprising that some scientists are skeptical of the widely accepted prediction of global warming. Now, in this third sentence, you're asked to perform another read-between-the-lines kind of act. They just said conventional wisdom, hypothesis. Here we're narrow. We're not talking about biology. We're not talking about chemistry. We're talking about climatology, right? This is the subfield of science that we're in, climatology. What is the conventional wisdom in climatology? Well, I don't know. They didn't say. I mean, yeah, they didn't say verbatim, but they did say, using other words, the widely accepted predictions of global warming. That's the hypothesis, the hypothesis that there is global warming. Average atmospheric temperature and ocean temperature is increasing at a faster than natural rate. That's the conventional wisdom. So you see, that's why the author says it's unsurprising that some scientists are skeptical because why is it unsurprising? Because the author just set up the biggest prize, like as a scientist, the biggest prize you get is what? Not just to take down any little hypothesis. Right, some fringe scientist with his crazy eye. You know what's causing global warming? Aliens is causing global warming. Yeah, you're not going to get much recognition for taking down that hypothesis. But the established, widely accepted predictions of global warming, if you can take that down, well, nothing brings more recognition than overthrowing conventional wisdom. See, that's why it's the author says it's unsurprising that some scientists are skeptical. Okay, one more sentence. What is instead remarkable is that with hundreds of researchers striving to make breakthroughs in climatology, very few find evidence that global warming is unlikely. That, the author thinks, is surprising. With so many people working in climatology trying to find breakthroughs, and the whole point of science is falsification, wouldn't you expect these scientists to have falsified the hypothesis of global warming? You would, except very few do. So what do you suppose this whole thing is driving at? See, if we were asked to do a main point, main conclusion, I get the sense, given the tone, given the synthesis of everything, all four, all four sentences in the stimulus, it's driving at the idea that probably global warming is true. How else do you explain with so much motivation to overturn this, you still don't have very much evidence at all. You know, only very few find evidence that global warming is unlikely meaning the majority do not. And not just any, not, not just like a slight majority, but like the overwhelming majority, right? Because very few find evidence global warming is unlikely. So therefore the overwhelming majority don't. Okay, so if you got that sense that that's what this whole passage is striving at, you're right. 
And if an answer choice says that, that would be at once the main conclusion of the passage that, you know, like, let's let's transition this into what we did last time. Let's just add a, at the very end of the stimulus, we say, therefore, blank. What would you fill that blank in with? You'd fill it in with a claim like, oh, well, therefore, to the best of our scientific understanding up to this point, global warming is likely true, right? Something like that. Okay. Now, again, if an answer choice says that, even though this is not a fill-in-the-blank with a conclusion question, this is a most strongly supported question, but because the former is a subset of this type of question, answers that are correct for the former would also be correct for MSS questions, for this kind of question. But it also creates an opportunity for the outside writers to create trap answers. Let's take a look at C, which sounds kind of like that conclusion that we wanted to draw, but is not. Visually, it's subtly different because it really is just like one or two words extra. But in terms of meaning, it's not subtle at all. It's incredibly different. C says there is evidence that conclusively shows that global warming hypothesis is true. No, that's way too strong, right? You cannot support that. We don't. We do not have evidence that conclusively shows that the that the global warming hypothesis is true in the stimulus. Okay, so two cookie cutter repetitive issues are raised in this answer choice. One is the issue that I'm talking about just now, that this word, using this word conclusively shows. That's too much. You can modify answer choice. You say, you know, to the best of our understanding, the global warming hypothesis is probably true. You could say something like that. But the information in the stimulus is not enough to support the claim that it is conclusively true. That's one issue. The second issue is what I already mentioned about being careful to segment your knowledge of the world versus knowledge presented in the stimulus. You might have knowledge of the world, which absolutely supports answer choice C. In our world, there absolutely is evidence that conclusively shows that global warming hypothesis is true. Even climate change deniers, even some of them believe this. Climate change deniers want to deny that human activity is the cause of this. Right, but anyway, that's a whole separate can of crazy. I don't, I don't want to open that. You might know this, right? You might know this fact about the world, but the thing is, you don't get to use this fact, which is, you know, that's not talked about. That's like earlier when I said the stimulus talked about wolves and adjacent to wolves is dogs, but the stimulus doesn't contain information about dogs. So you cannot use this adjacent information about dogs, which only exists in your mind and in the world, to support answer choice C. Okay, and that's what they're trying to get you to do here. In the stimulus, they didn't say anything actually about positive evidence showing that global warming is true. They just said, yeah, lots of scientists are trying to disprove it, but with all this effort, very few are coming up with evidence that global warming is unlikely. So the overwhelming majority can't find evidence that global warming is unlikely, right? Okay, but does that mean that there is evidence that conclusively shows global warming is true? Again, not according to the stimulus above, I mean, out in the world, in the real world of climatology, yes, there's tons of evidence that conclusively shows global warming is true, but the question stem limits you to using the information above. Okay, so that's, so this answer choice, this trap answer choice C is a great trap answer choice because it highlights these two commonly recurring tricks, you know, psychological traps that the LSAT likes to employ. One is baiting you to use adjacent true information that you know about the world but is not present in the stimulus, right? The other is just overshooting on the conclusion, like phrasing the claim stronger than 
what the information present in the stimulus is able to support. All right, how about B? Most researchers in climatology have substantial motive to find evidence that would discredit the global warming hypothesis. And initially, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. We never said anything about what their motives were. How, how can I support this? And, and here, you know, most researchers, come on, I don't know enough about most researchers. Surely that's also too strong. Just like answer choice C, you want to say something weaker, like maybe some researchers in climatology have some motive to find evidence to falsify global warming. You can't say most researchers in climatology have substantial motive, right? <laughs> well, no, turns out this is the right answer choice. And it does require reading between the lines. First statement tells us that the entire game of science boils down in essence to a falsifying hypothesis to show that this hypothesis is wrong, this hypothesis is wrong, this hypothesis is wrong. And what brings the utmost recognition in this game? Taking down the biggest, baddest hypothesis, right? Taking down the hypothesis that is most accepted brings the most recognition. The hypothesis that is so well regarded that it's conventional wisdom, that we just take it as fact. If you can take that down, you get the Nobel Prize, right? Okay, there's no Nobel Prize in climatology, but, you know, I guess there should be one. So with the first two sentences, you might be wondering, well, hold on, how do I know? J just because something brings recognition, how do I know that recognition is something that scientists want? Well, for one, it's implied by the author. The author says, because it brings recognition, it's unsurprising that scientists are skeptical, right? So... That's the signal that, at least for some scientists, recognition is important. How important? Important enough that they're willing to act on it. And here's where you don't want to get confused about B. It's not saying that most researchers in climatology are actively working to find evidence that would discredit the global warming hypothesis. That's taking it too far. Just because you have motivation to do a thing doesn't mean you go and do the thing. I mean... I can say for sure, because you're listening to this podcast, that you are motivated to study for the LSAT. And right now, your actions is in accordance with your motivations. But I'm sure you're not studying for the LSAT all the time. In fact, I'm sure there are some days when you feel like you should be studying for the LSAT, but you just can't bring yourself to do it. So you see, just because you have strong, substantial motivation to do a thing doesn't mean you act on it. This is why B gets away with this. B just makes a claim that most researchers in climatology have substantial motive to find evidence to falsify the global warming hypothesis. And that's true. That's true. Why? Because in the subfield of climatology, global warming is the conventional wisdom. And in any field of science, overthrowing conventional wisdom is the thing that brings the most recognition. And what is science, according to the stimulus, but a game of falsifying hypotheses? So you see, most researchers have substantial motive. Now, uh, you, you might still quibble with this. And you might still say, well, hold on, I, I still sense a little bit of an assumption being made here. Just because a thing brings recognition, does that mean it counts as motive? Like, how, wh why can't we say that, like, you know what? Scientists are not egotistical at all. They are, in fact, just unbiased, objective searchers for truth. They only have a thirst for truth and... That's all they're trying to do is quench that thirst, that, that curiosity for how the world works. They don't care about recognition. They don't care about prizes. They don't care about any of that stuff. Yeah, right. That might be true, but there is at least some textual evidence in the stimulus to suggest that that's not 100% true because at least some scientists, not only are they motivated, they're acting on that motivation for recognition. That's why our author says accordingly. 
You know, it is accordingly unsurprising that some scientists are skeptical. So at minimum, you have some subset of scientists for whom they're not devoid of all ego. They're not devoid of a desire for recognition. They are wanting that recognition. That recognition motivates them. And that motivation is strong enough such that they do it. Right. So from there, can you back out to say, well, if a subset of scientists are so motivated that they do this thing, can you then say there's a bigger set who are motivated but not doing the thing? Yeah, that's rather reasonable. I mean, unless you want to say, unless you want to make an unreasonable claim like, oh, no, 100 uh, percent of the people who are motivated act on that motivation. That's weird. That's that's that can't be right. Clearly, the set of people who are motivated by a thing has to be bigger than the set of people who act on that motivation. Right. Think about just anything, the number of people motivated to study for, for the LSAT versus the number of people who actually study for the LSAT, right? The number of people who are motivated to rob a bank, that might include you and me, <laughs> you know, assuming you're not like independently wealthy already versus the number of people who actually rob a bank, clearly a much smaller set, right? So the existence of the smaller set hints at the existence of this bigger set, right? Okay. And you might still quibble and say, well, oh, how do you know this bigger set is big enough so that encompasses most researchers? At this point, I just have to say, it's a most strongly supported question. Is this answer choice, answer choice B, a must be true based on the information above? No, it is not. I don't think so. I wouldn't sign on the dotted line for that, right? But the LSAT writers aren't requiring that. It just requires some support. The difference between, and we're going to get to must be true questions next time. The difference between most strongly supported questions and must be true questions is just the level, the strength of the support. There is no wiggle room for must-be-true questions. Must-be-true questions are airtight. If the premises above are true, then the claim, the correct answer choice, must be true. You cannot come up with this, well, hold on a second, how do you know? Right? No, none of those objections hold. But they might hold for most strongly supported questions, and here I think we've zeroed in on exactly one of those objections, but which is why this is a most strongly supported question. So... Some of you more advanced students, you know, if you've been studying for a while, you, you might wonder, like, is the standard here subjective or is it objective? Meaning, is B the correct answer choice because of A, C, D, and E and what they say and the silly things they say? Or is B, that, that would be the subjective standard, or is B objectively the correct answer choice? Like, it didn't matter what A said or C said or D said or E said. Substitute any other answer choice for A, C, D, and E, B would still be the right answer choice. That would be an objective standard. Okay, so the answer is that it's a subjective standard, but it looks like it's an objective standard because the LSI writers would never put in two answer choices that could arguably be right. If they did, and later they find out about this, they strike the question, they redact the question as a flawed question. Okay, so treat it as a subjective standard. This is why the question stem is phrased as uh, the information above provides the most support for which one of the following statements. I mean, think about the meaning of that question. It is claiming that while there may be some support for more than one answer choice, the level of support is not equal. And you are to identify the one answer choice that receives more support than the others. Doesn't mean you are to identify the answer choice that receives resounding, super strong support. No, it could be like weak-ass support that answer choice B receives. But as long as that weak-ass support is more than the support that A gets and C gets and D gets and E gets, well, then that makes B the right answer choice, right? Because it is a subjective standard. But again, 
in practice, it is kind of objective because B is present. You know, B is looking at me in the face. So because of that, I know that answer choices A, C, D, and E have to be written in a way that make them suck. They're not going to give you another answer choice that's better than this, right? Or, you know, in the alternate world where they did, they would have to delete answer choice B, right? So practically speaking, it's also objective. There is just going to be one answer choice, right? So, I mean, we talked about C and B here. We only talked about these two. Another way you can think about it is you can weigh what assumptions were being required to make, right? So we talked about the assumption for B. What about C? The evidence is conclusive that global warming hypothesis is true. Uh, okay, you just have to make up a bunch of stuff, right? You have to like draw upon the real world in ways that were not mentioned, but only adjacently talked about in the stimulus to support answer choice C. So if ever you find yourself doubting a correct answer choice because you, you think you spot some assumption, first of all, good. Kudos to you because that means you're being very careful as a reader and as a thinker. But now you also have to perform the act of weighing whether that assumption is more or less reasonable than the other answer choices assumptions that have to be made in order for those other answer choices to be the right answer. And it'll invariably turn out that the correct answer choice for these most strongly supported questions, if they have you make some tiny assumption, that assumption will be tiny. It will be smaller than the other assumptions that the wrong answers have us make. Okay, so let's look at another one, like uh, D, for example. D says, scientists who are skeptical about global warming, yeah, we talked about those scientists, you know, they are working to discredit global warming, but very few find evidence that global warming is unlikely. So D here is claiming something about scientists who are skeptical of global warming have not offered any alternative hypotheses to explain climatological data. Hmm, is that true? I mean, that has as much chance of being true as it does of being false. So if you think that's true, it is incredibly arbitrary. There's no good evidence to say that's true because I can say that it's false and you would be just as well supported by the information above as I would be by the information above. Because the key word is alternative or the key words are alternative hypotheses. You know that these scientists came up with some of them, very few of them, came up with evidence that global warming is unlikely. Now really the question is, did they just leave it at that? Did they not give any hypothesis to explain that evidence? I mean... Okay, you can just, the stimulus just stops talking. So we don't know according to the stimulus. Did they just present evidence? Or did they wrap this evidence in a story, in a hypothesis, so that you can make sense of the evidence? It's unclear. The stimulus just straight up does not say. Do you see, this is why, what I mean when I say, so if you want to take one position, no, they didn't give an alternative hypothesis. And I want to take another, yes, they did. Well, which one is right? We're, we have equal standing, right? But given the context of what's happening here, it's not actually equal standing. It's it's a little bit more likely that they wrapped it in alternative hypothesis. So D is wrong simply because it's not supported by the passage. But I think it's even more wrong because not only is it not supported by the passage, there's a hint of anti-support. There's a hint of going against information in the passage. So that's a cookie cutter type of wrong answer choice. In most strongly supported questions, in must be true questions where they give you information that goes against information in the passage. A is another answer choice like that. A says, most scientists who are reluctant to accept the global warming hypothesis are not acting in accordance with the accepted standards of scientific debate. So, okay, while it might seem like that's a good answer choice, 
it is not the right answer choice. A only seems like the good answer, a good answer choice because it's doing the same thing that C is doing. So in terms of how repetitive the LSAT writers are with employing psychological traps, you can see that they are very repetitive. Even within one question, they're re-employing the same psychological trap. Remember, C was trying to get you to use adjacent information you know about the world to support answer support it. A is also trying to get you to do that in a very imprecise and clumsy way. We know that these scientists who are reluctant to accept the global warming hypothesis in the real world, we know that either they are genuinely mistaken or they are being paid off by the petroleum industry. They have alternative motives. They're not sincerely playing the science game. Yeah, okay, but not that information is not in the stimulus. That information is in our heads, right? And it, and it also is out in the world. But the crucial fact is that it's not in the stimulus. In fact, what is in the stimulus? What is in the stimulus is this idea of how the science game is played, falsifying hypotheses. And isn't that exactly what these scientists are doing? Yeah, it is, right? Nothing brings more recognition than overthrowing conventional wisdom. Well, global warming is the conventional wisdom in climatology, so it makes sense that there would be scientists who would try to overthrow that. So then it would seem like these scientists are, in fact, precisely acting in accordance with the accepted standards of the scientific debate. Whereas A is trying to say it's they're not acting in accordance with accepted standard scientific debate. See, that that's the issue there. That's why A is not right. Okay, so one other thing I didn't mention about A is that timing is a thing. Like, after a certain amount of time and you still can't find evidence, and you're you you are then just being reluctant and stubborn and refusing to play the game right. Like, for example, if someone comes along and tries to present the geocentric model of the world, that's the one where the Earth is at the center of the solar system. Like, given the state of our current scientific knowledge, that's just insanity. You know, that you're not playing the scientific game. You, you can't be like, oh, well, you know, the accepted wisdom in science is that we are in a heliocentric solar system. Oh, and we're just in some distant spiraling arm of the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, well, the galaxy is just one of many, many galaxies. That's the accepted wisdom. Screw that. I'm going to overturn that. I propose this radical new hypothesis. The Earth is at the center of the universe. Yeah, okay, th that's not seriously playing the science game because time has passed, right? Like enough time has passed, enough evidence has accumulated that that's just crazy. Same with like flat earthers who, who think that I'm going to challenge the conventional wisdom that Earth is round. No, Earth is flat. If you're doing that, you're not really playing the science game, okay? And and how do we know that? Because, again, we have, can, we have knowledge about the world that says enough time has passed, enough evidence has accumulated, right? I mean, we, we've taken a photo of the Earth from space, for crying out loud. Like, what, what other evidence do you want to show that the world is round? And I bring this up because I want to give credit to people who are attracted to answer choice A. I want you to realize that that's what the outside writers are doing. They know that you know that enough evidence has accumulated enough time scientists were talking about global warming like decades ago right like so that at present if you're still 
refusing to accept the hypothesis, you're not really acting in accordance with accepted standards of scientific debate. But again, it boils back to information in the stimulus. There's no information in the stimulus that tells you about the timelines here. In fact, the information in the stimulus suggests, right, because the author explicitly says it is accordingly unsurprising that some scientists are skeptical of global warming, right? That's the information that tells you, no, 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 they are in fact acting in accordance with the scientific standards of debate, right? Because at that time, whatever time the author is talking about the situation, it's still okay. And in fact, it is in the spirit of science to debate to this, right? So that, that's an additional reason why A is attractive. Okay, and finally, answer choice E, it says research in global warming is primarily driven by desire for recognition in the scientific community. Now, you take issue with this one word, primarily driven. If it has something like research in global warming is driven by a desire for recognition in scientific community without saying what proportion a desire for recognition occupies out of the entire pie of your motivations, right? Like, here's my pie of motivation. This is why I get up in the morning and do my science work. Half of it is to make money so I can support my family. A quarter of it is my thirst for truth, intellectual curiosity. And then the last quarter is for uh, recognition and good social standing among my peers. Okay, I mean, I don't know, that, that might be the pie of your motivation, it doesn't say up in the stimulus what proportion of your motivation comes from recognition. It merely suggested that some proportion of your motivation comes from recognition, a desire for recognition. So that's the major problem with E, which is you can see repetitive with answer choice C because it overshoots on the claim. If it had, if E had just made a weaker claim, research in global warming is driven somewhat by a desire for recognition. Well then, okay, yeah, that would be pretty good answer choice, right? So you can see there are a lot of repetitive things going on. Like E and C shares this repetition of being, you know, too strong, like making a claim that's too strong. But don't think that all claims that are too strong, quote unquote, get eliminated automatically because, you know, B is also like really strong. Most researchers in climatology have substantial motive. You certainly can state that weaker, but B is still the right answer choice, notwithstanding the strength of its claims. So really the test is if the stimulus is strong enough to support a strong answer choice, right? In some ways, the stimulus is strong enough to support the strong answer choice in B, but it's not strong enough to support the strong claims in C and E, right? So, okay, so C and E share that in common. A and C share the psychological trap in common of baiting you to use information that you know in the, about the world, but that is not presented in the stimulus. And A and D share this cookie-cutter trap theme of going against information in the stimulus, right? So this, this test, like so much of your ability to do well on this test has to do with your familiarizing yourself with not just the cookie cutter nature of certain of, you know, the stimulus, but like a lot of it is just the cookie cutter nature of wrong answer choices. So you can quickly eliminate these wrong answer choices because for the vast majority of logical reasoning questions, you cannot predict the right answer choice. You can't read the stimulus, get the read the question stem, read the stimulus, and be like, oh, I know what it is. I, I, they're going to go for this. Yeah, that happens sometimes on easier questions. On a small minority of questions, you can predictively, accurately predict the correct answer choice. But don't count on it. By and large, you're doing process of elimination. To do process of elimination fast, you have to be familiar with the kinds, the types the cookie cutter nature of wrong answer choices. Okay, so one last 
point about this question 18. Notice that the correct answer choice is not the main conclusion. It would be really weird to say, oh, all of this stimulus is building to the conclusion that most researchers in climatology have substantial motive to find evidence to discredit global warming. Even though that claim that I just uttered is supported by the stimulus, right? But it's just, it's, it's like not the main conclusion. Now, this becomes important. Well, I suppose it's already important. But um, certainly, when you get to RC, typically after an RC passage, the first question is a main conclusion question. And can you guess what some of the trap wrong answers are going to be, given what I just told you? They're going to be random little claims that are either stated verbatim in the passage somewhere or are derivable, are supportable from something in the passage, but just not the main conclusion. Right? Because the main conclusion is a subset of most strongly supported questions. Like cats are a subset of mammals. So if you're asked for cats, you have to give me a cat. If you're asked for a main conclusion, you have to give me a main conclusion. You can't give me a dog. right? But if you're asked for a most strongly supported, the analogy here is you're asked for a mammal, well then you can give me a cat or a dog. right? You can give me a main conclusion or some claim that's not the main conclusion, but is still supported. Okay, so that's question 18. Let's take a look at the other, the only other most strongly supported question in this prep test. And that's question 22. And again, I do just want to apologize. It is also a challenging question. I really, really wish we had easy main conclusion questions to like kind of, you know, gently get your feet wet, so to speak. But um, I guess I've already pushed you into the deep end. So I'm going to keep your head underwater for a little while. All right. So uh, question 22, which one of the following is most strongly supported by the editorialist's statements? The stimulus says uh, it's the editorialist who's speaking to us. Okay, so editorialist says, News media never cover local politics thoroughly, and local political business is usually conducted secretively. Okay, again, these two claims just washed over my head. It's almost like I didn't even read them, right? I don't know if you're feeling this way. I suppose some of you are, some of you aren't. Again, I feel like it probably has to do with how familiar you are. Let's say you're a journalist who covers... Politics, like co- politics is your beat. Th- that Those two claims are just, they just immediately snap into place for you. But if you're more like me, you know, it's like, what did I just read? Right, okay, let's try that again. News media rarely cover local politics thoroughly. Okay, so I'm thinking news media, I know what that is. If they're not covering local politics thoroughly, what are they doing? Covering it in a cursory manner? Right, maybe not covering it at all. Maybe they're focusing on national politics. Yeah, that's what they're doing. They're focusing on national politics, right? Or uh, economics, international finance. They're focusing on whatever it is, but they're just not shining a bright spotlight that penetrates deep into local politics. Okay, that's the first half of this sentence. Second half says local political business is usually conducted secretively. Okay, so now I'm thinking the mayor with the legislative council behind closed doors cigar smoke everywhere, holding a clandestine, nefarious meeting, plotting uh, the takeover of the town, maybe the neighboring town. Who knows? Who knows what they're doing behind closed doors? They're doing it secretively, right? Okay, so now I kind of get the, these, these two um, kind of contrasts, right? On the one hand, the local politicians aren't so keen to be transparent and open about what they're doing. They'd rather be in the dark, Okay, I suppose you could counteract that with the media, you know, with the press. In fact, I think that's part of what the press is supposed to do, right? To shine a spotlight on politicians and what they're doing. 
But the press are like, yeah, I don't know. We have other things to shine our spotlight on. Our spotlight is too precious to use for local media. So these two factors kind of go together, right? One, like, I don't want you to look at what I'm doing, and you don't want to look at what I'm doing. Great. You being the media, me being the politician. Great. So let's let's just, you know, leave each other be. Right? Okay. You know who that's not great for? Citizens. Right? Democracy. That's not, that's that's who it's not good for. And next sentence says, the, these factors each tend to isolate local politicians from their electorates, right? Now it kind of makes sense. You can see how this might isolate, you know, create two separate bubbles. Oh, and one bubble is the politicians, closed door meetings, nobody knows what's going on, and the media is not revealing what's going on, so the residents have no idea what's going on. So they're two separate isolated bubbles. The politicians in one bubble versus the residents in the electorate in another bubble. This has the effect, this is referential phrasing. We talked a lot about referential phrasing, previous lessons, and uh, here, unsurprisingly, referential phrasing, it's, it's everywhere, right? What is this referring to? This is referring to the isolation of local politicians from their electorates, this isolation into two separate bubbles. This isolation has the effect of reducing the chance that any particular act of resident participation will elicit a positive official response. Now, you do have to think about this because, again, it's not immediately clicking for me what this means, right? The reduce the chance that any particular act of resident participation, like what, if I volunteer to man the polls, right, if, if I... What else can I do if I, like, volunteer for a campaign? Just in whatever way you can get involved with politics, I, I presume. Now, that could be met with, how is my mayor going to respond to that? Hey, good job, man. Thanks for coming out. You know, you're doing your civic duty. Pat on the back. That's a positive response. The mayor could ignore me, or the mayor could give me a negative response. Right? Don't ever do that again. Who do you think you are? You think this is democracy or something? This claim is telling me that isolation into two separate bubbles, what does it do to the odds of the mayor giving me a thumbs up? Does it increase the odds? No. Does it keep the odds the same? No. Does it decrease the odds? Yes, it decreases the odds, right? It reduces the chance that any particular act of resident participation will elicit a positive official response. Decreases the odds. Okay. Is that it? Is that the end? Nope. There's one more. Which in turn, so this thing of reducing the odds, which in turn discourages resident participation in local politics. Well, that last claim makes sense. If, you know, the chances of me getting a positive response from my elected politicians decreases, well, you know, all things held equal, that's going to discourage me from participating in local politics, right? Which, I mean, for me, I'm not a contrarian. Who knows? Maybe you're a contrarian and that's actually going to make you want to participate more. Right, good for you. But the according to the stimulus, that's not what, what's happening. Right, it, according to the stimulus, it de discourages resident participation in local politics. So I bring that point up about maybe you being a contrarian, because you don't want to question the stimulus. This is not the place for that. For most strongly supported questions, and also main point questions, and also main conclusion questions, these are questions where you just accept these claims as true claims. The point is to say. If I accept these claims as true, can I draw support from these claims and support another claim from them, right? That's the act. It's later when you get into argument analysis, and of course we will, or I suppose if you've already listened to the, um, you know, Resolve, Reconcile, Explain, and how they can be transformed into weakening questions and vice versa, that's argument analysis, weakening questions, strengthening questions, sufficient assumption, necessary assumption, all those questions. There you don't, you, you do get skeptical. Right, but here, we're not being skeptical. 
not of the stimulus anyway, right? Okay, so just to summarize the stimulus, what did we learn? We learned that there are two factors, A and B, right? A is the media shining a spotlight, or rather their absence of shining a spotlight. And B is the local politicians conducting business secretively behind closed doors, right? So A and B together produce this effect C, which is isolating into two bubbles. One bubble is the politicians, the other bubble is their electorate, right? That's the C effect. C effect has in turn D effect, right? So A and B both point to C, C points to D, which is that I'm less likely to get a thumbs up for my mayor, which then points to E, which means I'm now less likely going to participate in local politics, right? That's it. That's the entire passage. So what does it support? Well, let's take a look at answer choice D. More frequent, thorough coverage of local politics, and that is say the opposite of A, right? The opposite of A. Remember, A is not much, rarely, and not thorough local politics coverage. So this answer choice has more frequent, thorough coverage, the opposite of that, local politics, would reduce at least one source of discouragement from resident participation in local politics. Yeah, you just run the whole causal chain through. A and B both lead causes C, which then causes D, which then causes E. So indirectly, what are the causes E? Well, directly it's D, indirectly it's C, and then even more indirectly it's A and B, right? So those are all the causes of A, of sorry, of E. And this answer choice, this correct answer choice is simply saying, well, because we recognize that A is an indirect cause of E, if you had less of A, that would reduce at least one source of E. Yeah, that's right. That is totally supported. In fact, notice this answer choice here, it's a little bit different, isn't it, from the previous questions, correct answer choice, question 18. Here, we are synthesizing all of this information, right? All of this information gets utilized because the whole causal chain has to flow through for you to realize that A has an effect on E and therefore reducing A will reduce one of the sources of E, right? Everything has to flow through. So in a sense, this correct answer choice has a better claim to be a main conclusion. It wouldn't be so weird if you say, therefore, right, after all this, therefore, more frequent thorough coverage local politics would reduce at least one source of discouragement. Yeah, that seems kind of natural because of this, you know, this synthesis nature of this answer choice. So you see, even though we're just, you know, we have just two questions for most strongly supported, they do illustrate the different kinds. Like this is an instance where Yes, the question stem is asking most strongly supported. It just says, find me a mammal. But the correct answer choice just happens to be a cat, just happens to be a main point. Whereas for the previous question, the question stem is most strongly supported. Find me a mammal. The correct answer choice is a dog. And there's an imposter cat, right? Answer choice C from the previous question kind of looked like a cat, but it just had one too many tails. Okay, so let's take a look at some of the other answers. A is really attractive. A says particular acts of resident participation would be likely to elicit a positive response from local politicians if those politicians were less isolated. Right? That sounds right, doesn't it? Didn't we say because of the isolation, directly because of the isolation, an act that reduces the chance that any particular act will elicit a positive response? Yeah, that's right. Isolation reduces the chance of positive response. So if no isolation, then what happens to chance? It goes up, it increases. Well, good then. Doesn't that mean A is supported? No, because that's not what A is saying. It's very subtle, but it's a very big difference. A doesn't say if less isolated, odds of positive response increases. A says if less isolated, odds of a positive response increases to above 50%. Right? Okay, it's not actually using those words, but that is what it's saying. 
because it says would be likely to elicit a positive response versus what should it have said would be more likely, right? Like that's the difference between saying, if you don't invite me for dinner, I will be more likely to go see a movie versus if you don't invite me for dinner, I will likely go see a movie. In the second world, if you don't invite me for dinner, odds are better than 50% that I'm going to go see a movie because I said I will be likely to go see a movie. That's that's just what it means to say you're likely to go see a movie. It's it's an implicit comparison between you're going to see a movie and you're not going to see a movie and you're claiming that you're going to see a movie has more than it's it's more than a coin flip chance. It's more than 50%. Versus in the first world where we say if you don't invite me for dinner, that would increase my likelihood of going to see a movie. From what? Right? Like from from what? What was my likelihood of going to see a movie in the first place? Was it just 1%? Right, so if, if it was just 1%, then increasing it to 5% is an increase. That still means I'm not likely to go see a movie, but I'm more likely to go see a movie, right? So that's what they're doing here. This is a, with answer choice A, you, you just can't say particular acts of resident participation will be likely to elicit a positive response. You don't know that because you don't know what the threshold of increasing is, right? How much is it going to increase? Just a little bit or increase it by a lot so that it clears the 50% threshold? We have no idea. We, we just know from the premise that it's going to increase a little. It's going to go up a little bit, right? Somewhat it's going to go up. So that's a relative versus absolute issue. It's, it's cookie cutter in nature. Lots of wrong answer choices draw upon this, right? They use this as a mold to stamp out, to cut out a bunch of wrong answers. So I do expect to see this idea repeated in the future. Now let's take a look at B, which is also really attractive. It says local political business should be conducted less secretively because this would avoid discouraging resident participation in local politics. Now, in some ways, I feel like, yeah, this is right. I, I really like this answer choice. I think this is totally true. I'm all for democracy. And yeah, it's, it's important to have transparency in politics for a democracy to be healthy and functioning, right? Okay, fine. That has nothing to do with what the editorialist says because the editorialist, for all we know, is an autocrat, right? The editorialist is like, wait, hold on. You read all these claims that I made about lack of media spotlight, the secrecy of local politics, how that isolates politicians from their electorate, how that discourages electorates from participation. You think I was telling you all that stuff because I think it's bad? Are you high? I am saying all this stuff because this is a rule book for autocrats. This is how you take over a small town. First, you get the media to go away, get their attention on something else. Then you conduct all of your political business secretively, which then is going to have the effect of isolating electorate from politicians, which then is going to discourage them from participating in politics, which is perfect. That's exactly what you want because you want to run things, right? You want to take over. Yeah, likely that's not what the editorialist is thinking just because most people are not authoritarians in nature and most people are for democracy but the thing is you don't know where this editorialist stands based on her claims here she that she made in the stimulus there's nothing that reveals nothing about tone certainly no explicit claims of value that reveal whether this is a good thing or a bad thing so this brings up another common recurring theme cookie cutter in the LSAT, which is the difference between descriptive statements that merely describe the way things are versus prescriptive statements that try to talk about how things should be. The latter, these prescriptive statements, 
you have to have, you know, you have these words that like should or good or value, right? Like these are things that are not merely about describing the way things are, but rather that reveal how you value certain things. We should do this. We should do that. We uh, Doing this is good for us. Doing that is bad for us. This is a valuable thing. Those are all in the prescriptive realm. So it's a red flag, you know, when an answer choice for most strongly supported question has this prescriptive claim, local politics should be conducted less secretively. You have to ask yourself, okay, that's fine. Maybe it is supported because maybe, maybe I just overlooked something the editorialist said. Maybe the editorialist is thoroughly supportive of democracy, right? And I just overlooked it. But then you look through the claims again, you realize, oh, wait, these are all just descriptive claims. News media just simply don't cover local politics. Local politics is conducted secretively. These po- these factors do isolate, right? Tend to isolate, which has the effect of this, which in turn has the effect of this. Nowhere did the editorialist say whether this whole thing was good or bad, right? Which is why I'm able to take a position where she's actually an autocrat. And this is a rule book for how to take over a little town. And everything is still consistent, precisely because she didn't reveal, right? Oh, you, I mean, it's, it, you just have to like say, add a sentence at the end and be like, oh, by the way, this is why we should have news media focus on local politics, or this is why local political business should be more transparent. That one little claim is enough to reveal the editorialist's values. But as it stands, you know, the editorialist didn't make such claims, so you don't know. You don't know. So we can't support answer choice B. Okay, but really the takeaway is this distinction between prescriptive and descriptive claims. If you have a prescriptive claim in the answer choices, you need some prescriptive claims in the stimulus to support it. Okay, C is also really attractive. It says the most important factor influencing a resident's decision as to whether to participate in local politics is a chance that the participation will elicit a positive official response. Now, this answer choice is very similar to the previous questions, answer choice C and E, which in that these answer choices, all three of them, they overshoot on the conclusion. They're too strong. Like to modify C so that it's the correct answer choice, you just have to drop the word most important. You just have to say a factor influencing a resident's decision is the chance that elicit positive response. That's super well supported. It's clearly a factor, but is it the most important factor? We don't know. Could there be some other factor that's more important? Yes, there absolutely could be. So C is a Wrong answer choice for repetitive reasons. And already, just in two questions, you see the nature of the repetition, just how repetitive the LSAT is, right? So again, you know, I say part of your, part of, uh, here I'll say probably one of the most important factors, one of the most important factors is your ability to identify cookie cutter, repetitive, wrong answer choices. That's how you get better on LR. Okay, and lastly, answer choice E is a word salad answer choice. Right. It's a also a cookie cutter pattern, which I, I feel like I've talked about before, where they just take these ideas and jumble them together. Here they, they're doing something extra special. This is like a chef special menu salad or something where they take a causal claim and they present it in the language of contrapositive. OK, so here's what I mean. You can say if you're a cat, then you are a mammal. Right. For sure. That's true. Which yields the contrapositive that if you're not a mammal, then there's no way you're a cat. Right. That's a contrapositive. Um, I don't, I don't know if you've learned, I mean, you know, in the core curriculum, we have a whole thing of lessons on, uh, fundamental logic, right? But I think this probably just makes sense. You just think about it. If you're a cat, then you're a mammal. Yes, true. Well, that means if you're not a mammal, of course you can't be a cat, 
right? Because mammal is a superset of cat. If you're not even in the bigger superset, where the hell are you? Wherever you are, you're not in the smaller subset of cats, right? Maybe you're a lizard. Okay, so that's fine. Now, it would be weird to say that being a cat causes you to be a mammal. That's not really what causes means, right? So so already you, you can sense there's a distinction between the first set of claims, which are conditional claims, versus the second set of claims, which are causation claims. I mean, again, I'm, I'm bringing up two huge separate topics in logical reasoning, which get covered in uh, full detail in the curriculum. But um, here, just sort of the light version of it, you can just kind of sense that these are different claims. For one, it's not weird to say, if you're a cat, then you're a mammal. And it is kind of weird to say being a cat in some sense causes you to be a mammal. I mean, I guess, sort of, if you really water down the notion of cause. The fact that I banged my toe on the door is what's causing my pain. Like, that I get. But look, here's an even weirder claim. You don't get to say something like, not being a mammal causes you not to be a cat, right? That's also just really strange. Right, or in the example I just used, uh, I said banging my toe on the door is what's causing my pain. You don't get to do this, like flip it around and slap negations on it, the thing that you get to do in logic, the contrapositive. Right? You don't get to say something like not feeling pain is what caused me to not bang my toe on the door. Right? Because causation doesn't work like that. You have to invoke some kind of time travel for that situation to even be coherent. Not feeling pain caused me to not bang my toe on the door? What what are you talking about? That doesn't even make sense, right? But in the conditional version of this, surely it makes sense. If I say every time I bang my toe, like if I bang my toe on the door, guaranteed I will be in a lot of pain. So if I'm not in a lot of pain, then what do you know about me? What you know is that I did not bang my toe on the door. Like, that's true. But Again, it's just weird to say that not feeling pain is the cause of me not having banged my toe on the door. That's weird. Because you know what's the real cause of me not having banged my toe on the door? Just me being careful, right? Like me walking past my door in this particular way. That's what caused me to avoid a collision with my toe in the door. Not the fact that I'm not feeling pain right now. Right, so that's what they're trying to do with this answer choice in E. And I know I haven't even read E, but I wanted to use the simpler version um, of like, you know, your toe and the door or the cat and the mammal to get you comfortable with the idea that conditional statements first are not the same as causation statements. And two, conditional statements have contrapositives. Causation statements don't have, I mean, to even say a causation statement has a contrapositive, is, is, it's a category error. That's like saying numbers can be mad. Right? It, it, it's a category error. It doesn't even make sense. Right? But that's what they're doing in answer choice E. Okay, so here, here we go. He says, if resident participation in local politics were not discouraged, this would cause local politicians to be less isolated from their electorate. You see, the flipped around version of it is, is right. Local politicians being isolated from the electorate is in fact what causes discouragement in resident participation. That's right. That's A causing B. But E is trying to say, the, therefore, not B is causing not A. If resident participation in local politics were not discouraged, this would cause local politicians to be less isolated from the electorate. Now, that's exactly like saying me not feeling pain is what caused the avoidance of the collision between my toe and the door. It's just, no, it's, just, it's, not, a, it's not a coherent concept. Okay, but you're going to get lots of other answer choices like E because it's just kind of this word salad mishmash of ideas that they talked about. 
you should expect to see other answers like this. But okay, that's that's it for today. Um, I hope this lesson was helpful. And I'll reiterate that if you found it hard to follow just by listening, just go on 7th Age and you can find the video explanation where I actually go through uh, with visuals. It's a lot easier to follow um, for these two questions. I mean, they're the free questions that the LSAC makes publicly available. Okay, so lots of stuff. In summary, remember that for MSS questions, that's a superset of those main fill in the blank with main point questions, right? It's a superset, but it's still dealing with this idea of support, which means a claim being true supports another claim just when the first claims being true increases the likelihood of the second claim being true. That's what support means. That's one takeaway. The other takeaways revolve around identifying and familiarizing yourself with cookie cutter wrong answer choices. Okay, so that's it for today. Um, Next time, I'm going to talk about must-be-true questions, or singular must-be-true question. Unfortunately, there is only one must-be-true question in the June 2007 prep test, so we just have to talk about that one. But as a preview, the difference between must-be-true questions, most strongly supported questions, is you're just toggling up the level of support, right? For most strongly supported questions, there's some support. For must-be-true, you're turning that dial all the way to the right, as far up as it goes, the maximum level of support. That's a must-be-true question. Okay, so until next time, study hard.